I live in service of, of others and the, the things I'm doing will hopefully make an impact on everyone else. And so it's kind of like, if I'm not living my best me, I'm hurting other people. Hello, and welcome to the Method Makers podcast by Method Supply. Intentional conversations with incredible humans sharing their daily method. Today, Kaipo talks with investor Spencer Kay. Spencer is driven. He is a young investor and entrepreneur that has been able to find success in the world of startups. We hope you enjoy. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Method Makers podcast. I am your host, Kaipo Sotelo, and I am here today with a very special guest. His name is Spencer Kay, and Spencer is one of those people that works well when no one's watching. He likes to move and move well and, and make these big, awesome strides in the backstage, I guess you could say. Um, Spencer, welcome to the show. Hey, Kaipo, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, for sure. Spencer, you're calling from Austin, um, so we got a little bit of a time hop. You've been super, super great about wanting to make sure we stay connected and everything like that. And um, But when we met, I remember us hitting it off really, really well because both of us love the idea of approaching things with a creative mindset and be more about the method and building something great. And I know that you are building a few things that are great. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, Spencer? Sure, happy to. So I guess to rewind, I was uh, quite entrepreneurial when I was a kid. When I was uh, 14, 15, I founded a niche to essentially buy concert tickets to events I knew were going to sell out. And so I'd ask my mom for a credit card and I'd go and and buy as many concert tickets as I could. And I would get them and wait for the event to sell out and then jack the price up three to five times and sell them to anyone that was willing to pay. And I had a ticket scalper. (laughs) It was a ticket scalper. That was my first (laughs) business. And I did that for a couple of years until we actually started uh, hosting our own events when we were 16, 17. We were flying in uh, Asher Roth. We were flying in uh, Chris Chris Webby. We were all these... um, all these artists and uh, hosting the venues ourselves, so we could make a hundred percent of the of the profit. And so those are my first. That was sort of my first like dive into business. But it wasn't until twenty thirteen, um, sort of uh, early early college, that I discovered Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I thought Bitcoin was the coolest thing ever. This idea of you know, no central party, uh, people being able to exchange value without a third party, and uh, uh, we started mining. We we were actually among the first people to purchase uh, Bitcoin ASIC miners and, and start deploying them uh, in the entire United States, but definitely in Texas. And uh, did that for did that for a couple of years. Um, learned learned about other cryptocurrencies like Ethereum. Was lucky enough to invest pretty early into uh, a bunch of different cryptocurrencies. And by uh, the end of college, um, I was running a uh, pretty sizable venture fund where we were making investments in equity and tokens and that grew substantially. To date, we've made 28 investments. Uh, We've had six exits and a lot of those companies are in fintech, but we've done some investments in healthcare, done some investments in, um, we'll call it defense tech. And we're we're sort of uh, industry agnostic, although fintech in the US and Asia has been been our sweet spot. But it's, yeah, over the last few years, I've, I've sort of worked with com- companies in Deathly, um, joining as interim directors or interim vice presidents, serving on the board of directors. And yeah, that's, that's a, I guess, a little bit about me, my story. 
Definitely. And thank you for sharing all of that. I, I mean, as you said, I mean, you've had like this sort of steady and quick exponential growth into the entrepreneurial thing. You're that ideal. And I think people's heads like, okay, this is how I want to make it. But you've actually made it happen over the course of your life, like so far. And I just want everyone to know that Spencer is 25. And Spencer is not done yet. He is just getting started. And I think that is so, so cool. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to have met him. So let's, let's re- rewind a few years. Um, when you, before you were ticket scalping and starting to do these events and seeing all these cool different spaces um, where you can invest and seeing opportunities in which you can make money, before you had that capital and before all of what you're doing right now, Mm-hmm. Um, what did you want to be when, when you were little? <laughs> did you know you wanted to be this? Um, I think that over time I did. I, I sort of had this um, grandiose vision of being this Silicon Valley venture capitalist. And so I think to, over time, it's what I wanted to be. But when I was a really young, I was definitely a horribly behaved kid. And I definitely had this like super high level of impatience I always had to be doing something. I always wanted things my way. And I, I, people told me I should be a, a, a benevolent dictator of a, of a country. <laughs> and so I kind of, kind of, maybe that was my first dream of, of wanting to be something. But um, over time, I think it evolved into to doing things that were more uh, beneficial for society at whole, which in my opinion, the, the greatest changes to uh, civilization in the last I guess 20 years is, has been through technology. And so funding technology, being a part of early technology is definitely um, the best way to generate an impact, a lasting impact. So you, you see the value in technology. And I, I mean, you'd be silly not to see how far we've advanced even in the last 50 years um, in tech. Uh, why, why do you feel like there is added value in investing in technology? Well, I think that software is eating the world as a, as um, just to be repetitive, you know, I've heard that, I'm sure you've heard that a hundred times, but it really is. I mean, if you look at how many things we, people used to do day to day in person or um, things that were physical that are, that are now digital, I mean, it's just, it's just changing everything. And I think now, um, especially we're starting to see that all these things we used to do in person um, because of COVID-19, we're having to do remotely, remote meetings, um, re- remote concerts and, and presentations are all, I mean, and uh, events and con- conferences are all now being done online. And so it just goes to show that we software really can eat the entire world. <laughs> and so I think it's really important to, to be a part of that. And as for me, especially, I think that um, finance has um, largely been, the value's largely been extracted by bankers, central bankers and commercial bankers. Um, back back in the you know early 1900s, there were some laws, rules, regulations, things created like the Federal Reserve that really disproportionately put those individuals in a um, advantageous position to extract mm-hmm. value from uh, citizens at large. And so I think that financial technology, which in, in essence is disintermediating commercial banks, central banks to a certain extent, um, has the largest uh, potential to impact society at large. And that's the area that I've been focused on mostly over the last uh, couple of years. Oh, so you kind of see 
technology integrating into society and, and not just the convenience and the what people see like using laptops and smartphones and smartwatches and everything, but you see it integrating into jobs that were primarily man-based. For example, my first thought was Ray Dalio. Um, Ray Dalio is the CEO of Bridgewater, right? And so when I was reading his book, Principles... Love Principles. Principles is a fantastic, fantastic book. And one of the things that I remember reading in it was the fact that, you know, we, we at the end of the day make the decision. Men make the decision. But if you can figure out how to get robots and AI and these things to work with you and alongside you, influence your decisions in a way that is profitable, then that's how you can, you can really make bigger and more secure moves. Um, and to see that in foresight, and that was back in the 80s, and to see what you're doing now um, on that foundation and probably are d- investing in things that are way over my head, um, both conceptually and monetarily. But it's, it's cool to see that you can pick out these patterns, and it seems like that you have an eye for them. Um, so when you're, when you're thinking about an, a company to invest in, right, what do you look for in a company that you want to put money toward? That's, that's, a, that's a tough question, but a lot of things. Um, the first and foremost is, is it an area that I understand? And if it's, not an, an, if it's not an area that I understand, is it an area that I have a close colleague, partner, or person that's putting a lot of their own money in that understands it well and can articulate that to me? I have to have some, I, I have to be able to explain it to myself and other, our other investors how, um, you know, what the company is and how it works and how they make money. So that's important to me. Um, the team is, is obviously huge. Um, your chances of success from serial entrepreneurs um, is drastically increases, right? Versus a first time founder. You want to look at how much money they've raised today. What's the, what's the cash on hand? What's the burn rate? What, what's the size of the market they're addressing? How, how much money are they going to have to deploy in order to get significant scale? Who's going to be their competitors that have a mousetrap? Is, it, that, is that mousetrap protected? Um, you know, is there any, is there anything proprietary about it? Just those, those sorts of things that I look at at a high level. But um, I think the main things that get my attention initially are um, the team and then who are the other people investing in it. I mean, not, not a lot of people know this, but, or, or I guess most people know this, but maybe they don't have a, they're not in the weeds of it, but the venture community is, is small and we all talk and all the sort of the way you get deal flow is by sharing deal flow and you don't want to share deal flow that isn't good. So all the, all the major VCs and even smaller VCs like us, we all talk, we all share deals to one, to one another. And we have an incentive to share good deals because we want them to participate, to get our, our portfolio companies more money, but to also be able to get deal flow from them when they have a deal that I probably maybe didn't have access to, or I don't have a relationship with the founder. So it's, so all that relationship building and that exchange of deal flows is really important. Um, in a previous podcast, I talked with Charlie Van Noren, who's breaking into the music industry. He's a film scorer and all that. And a lot of it is this idea of having a network and having mm-hmm. good soft skills mm-hmm. in order to maintain these relationships. Because, um, I mean, classic game theory, right? Um, if, if these people are going to be the same players in the next game, you're going to have to treat them in a certain way in this game. And if they can figure out a way to have a positive sum game, then it kind of makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. So here's my question for you. Um, especially with 
COVID-19 and especially with everything going virtually with meetings virtually and not being necessarily face to face anymore. Um, the old adage of take your, take your clients out and that's where the deals are made on the golf course. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, with the current state of the world today and everything being virtual, how do you maintain these relationships and how do you make sure that you have these, this deal flow and it's consistent, even though you can't be maybe in the same place as a lot of these other players. So I'm actually quite, quite a bit old school for someone my age. Um, mm-hmm. I, li- I like the in-person meetings. I've met a ton of people in person at, at conferences, at events. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm fortunate enough to have like my solid foundation of people that I've met in person and had spent enough time with in person. But, you know, you can, you can build a strong relationship with someone over the phone or on, on a video call. And um, those, those relationships are maintained, obviously, just through, through messaging, through email. But like a lot of the, a lot of the investors that I'm, uh, that I'm close in contact with, we're in like different group chats or Slack channels where we're all, always sharing ideas back and forth or we're doing due diligence on deals together. And so that's sort of, we're, we're, we're interacting through, like take Slack, for example, we're interacting through these different channels and these different threads. And, and then someone will message me and say, Hey, you want to hop on a call about this? And then we'll jump on a call. And then, so the relationships can be maintained even, even at a distance, but I do not fear coronavirus whatsoever. Um, I did the math, um, based on, (laughs) based on, um, a 21% chance of getting the virus from being exposed to it, which that number comes from the, the cruise ship that was docked in Japan. 21% 21% of the people got the virus. And then if you're between the ages of 20 and 29, you have a 0.2% chance of actually dying from coronavirus. And that number of the total cases of coronavirus, only 0.9, so 90% of 1%, actually died without having any pre-existing conditions. So if you extrapolate all of that, your chances of dying from coronavirus, if you're between the ages of 20 and 29, which you and I are, is one in 300,000. So I think the chances of me taking a road trip may be close to that in dying. So it's not anything that I fear. And it's in fact, some, I just want to get it over with so I can see my grandparents so I can travel so I don't have to, it doesn't have to stay, you know, hanging over my head. Then I could travel and move about freely. I hear you, man. It's, it's a weird situation with the world. And I mean, obviously unprecedented. Um, but the fact that you're able to have your method by which you see maybe investment, right? Like, mm-hmm. so you saw, you see, you look at the numbers and you look at, hey, is this feasible? And is, does this make sense? And that kind of thing. You, you take that and you take that same process of thinking and you see it in the world today. And like you spout it off from probably memory of um, these facts about this virus. And you're able to say like, okay, I'm at low risk, but I mean, it's not changing my life necessarily. So I'm shouldn't be worried. I should still move in this way and see in all this noise, how can I still come out on top at the end of it? And I've always admired that process about you. Um, even in our, in our day in Guam, I remember you like asking these kind of off the book questions about making sure like, Hey, how's the status of this? What is the presence of this group on Guam? You know, like there, there, it's it's really interesting to see your your line of thinking and following it. And 
it's again, it's highly intelligent and it's way over my head. Um, but I feel like I've already learned so much uh, from our relationship as friends. So um, I guess moving on to that, um, can you break that line of thinking down just a little bit more? Um, I guess I want to ask you in your day, um, what is your method by which you tackle your day? Um, and take us in the mind of Spencer K. Yeah. So I think, so if you read um, tools of Titans, so book where they essentially interviewed all of the celebrities, billionaires, people of success that you, that you and I have heard of. And they asked them like, you know, what that, the question you just asked me and, and a lot of them, um, I think it was almost 90% of them. They have a daily routine that they do in the morning and I, and I'm not, not to compare myself to them at all, but I have a routine as well. So, um, first and foremost, I don't touch the phone. So the first thing your your mind wants in the morning is that hit of dopamine from reading your text messages or your emails. I delay that gratification, and instead I force myself to do something physical. So I do not get the phone or or laptop until I do something physical, whether that be a run, whether that be doing yoga, tai chi, or um, a you know a light workout with weights. I don't get to that's like rule number one is like no phone until physical activity. But what I typically do is I'll wake up, maybe I'll do 30 minutes of yoga and then I'll go um, walk my dogs and make sure I spend some time outside. Um, it's really good to have, to, to spend some time um, barefoot on the earth. It's really good for your circadian rhythm. It's really good for your, for your, your energy and your magnetic field and your body syncing up. So I always make sure that I, if assuming it's not raining, that I spend some time barefoot on the earth. And then I come back in and I get on my phone, check my email and then get my day started. Typically work 12 hours, but when I'm done with work for the day, I turn off my phone, I turn off my laptop. Sometimes I even hide it because it's so tempting and I just completely unplug from work and I don't even like talking about it. <laughs> so That's amazing. Then I rinse and repeat. That routine sounds very similar to every story that I hear about, say like Warren Buffett or Ray Dalio or these other people that you're almost like a younger version of. So I think that's really cool. To, no, kind of, kind of see. not at all. Thank you though. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Spencer, in, in that method and in, in your day and making sure you walk through it with routine and you have a way and you have your own unique method by which you operate and you know, the routine can get tedious. And this is um, one question I've, I've all, I always ask, but what makes that worthwhile to you? The routine? Yeah. Um, well, I like to, you know, peak performance, right? So I'm pretty into biohacking, um, done, experimented with all sorts of technologies that help you, you know, with, let's say, um, master your, using different types of your brain waves or syncing your heart rate with your with your mind or um you know infrared saunas or I, I you know i spend uh, about three four hours a week in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber where i'm compressed to 1.3 atmospheres to rush blood rush blood into my brain so like i do these things to always perform my best because you know you only got one life and you got to do it right and so i want to i want to take that with me at all times you know that that's that line of thinking you want to be the best spencer for your day and for your life for yeah and, and you know it's i i like to think that i i live in service of, of others and that the things i'm doing will 
hopefully make an impact on everyone else. And so it's kind of like, if I'm not living my best me, I'm, I'm hurting other people. I like that. I like that a lot, man. Um, so Spencer, really my last question for you today, and it's a bit of a two-parter and it's like kind of the way I've come to enjoy hearing people reflect on their life. Um, but the first part of it would be, would your little you, the one that wanted to be a benevolent dictator of a small nation, um, would he be proud of you in the way you live your life today? And what is one sort of word that describes that whole journey to where you are now? Hmm. Great question. I would say I'm, I'm pretty hard on myself. Um, I've always been really, really hard on myself, almost abusive toward myself. Uh, and so I think I can, I can think I can do better, honestly, um, in, in every category. And if I didn't think that I could do better, then um, I don't think I'd be where I'm at today. So, so I'd say no, um, I, I'm, I'm not like, like, yeah, I pat myself on the back every once in a while, but I can do so much better. And so um, I have a lot of a long ways to go, but uh, transformation um, transform capital is the name of our fund, transforming things, transformation, transformation would be the, would be that word that describes, I guess, the path from me as a, as a child to, to where I am today and where I continue to go. And I always keep an open mind. I always, I'm always willing to hear new ideas, always willing to, um, be, I'm always open to changing my previously held beliefs on a given topic, even something so fundamental to my existence, um, you always got to be open, open-minded. Um, so, and, and that leads to transformation. Hopefully, that transformation is for the better. That's awesome, man. Thank you for sharing everything that you did today with us, Spencer. Um, learned so, so much. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we ended up? Not at all, man. You're, you're, you're killing it. Don't sell yourself short. You're, you're a very impressive uh, young man, like I am, and you're bound for amazing things. I know it. I, I can, I have a very keen sense. It's what I do for a living is, is feel out other people and see if they're going to be successful and then bet on them. And, uh, I would definitely bet on you. You're awesome. That means a lot to me, Spencer. I appreciate that, man. Well, yeah. thanks for coming on and we will look forward to seeing where transform and mainly Spencer K goes in the world. Thank you, man. Thank you. Talk to you soon. That was method maker Spencer K on how he makes key decisions with a methodical approach. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Method Makers podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to share and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming service. That's all for now. But as always, we challenge you to find, live, and share your method today. See you next time.